Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Is it good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand? For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom, I said. I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, I just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here together. Lord, would you open our minds, our hearts. Um, Lord, uh, we just pray that as we leave this place today, that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted, we're encouraged where we need to be encouraged, but most importantly, Lord, we just want to see life change. So, Lord, speak clearly to us. Um, prevent us from distraction. I pray that anything that we brought into this room that is not of you would just be eliminated, Lord, that for these next few minutes, we would just be able to focus on what you have to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It's cold. Um, I was... Telling some, so if you don't know, I'm originally from California, Southern California, and yesterday was awful. Um, and I, I feel spoiled because this has probably been one of the most mild winters that we've had since I've lived in Boston. And yesterday was probably the coldest day that we've experienced since I've lived in Boston. So I don't even know what to do with that. Um, all I can say is, okay, we'll just praise God. But yes, I'm glad you guys are here. Um, we spent a lot of time praying yesterday for everybody who was out in the cold, and if you were out in it, I'm sorry that you had to be. Um, for those of you who are new, welcome. My name's Kevin. I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well in East Boston. Um, if you get a chance, pray for Church at the Well in Everett. Um, I was told that there's much disease and pestilence that's being passed around over there, so we need to pray over all of them. Um, we have been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, so we picked this right back up kind of after our vision series, and last week... Um, Solomon basically forced us to lean into God's sovereignty, right? I mean, that's, that's basically where, and he's going to kind of pick up from there, but I will tell you, like today, as I studied this passage this week, and we're, I'm thinking about what is this going to look like today, 
The purpose here is not to depress you. <laughs> I just want to say that right, right up front. This is a tough passage. It's, it's going to answer some really interesting philosophical questions probably that you've had, and obviously it comes from a religious context since it's coming from Scripture and God's Word is truth. Um, and ultimately what it's attempting to do is build off the sovereignty of God and help us understand why we need Jesus. Now, I have, you've probably heard me say if you've come here very often that the first step in understanding that you need a Savior is to understand that you need a Savior, right? Which means you have to understand that you're lost. You have to understand that you're depraved, that there's something in us that needs to be redeemed and saved. And the world, everywhere, when it doesn't matter where you go, there's something that seems to be innate, innately built in us that, that knows that there's something else out there. There's, whether you call it a higher power, you call it God, you call it um, uh, something that you're going to worship, there's something in us that says, okay, we can't be all that's here. There has to be something else out there. And in comparison to what else is out there, I feel very small. And, and then what, what ends up occurring in humanity is we begin to worship that which we believe to be greater than us. So, for example, if you in your history maybe have worshipped nature and you've said, let's look at the world around us and um, we don't know maybe where all of this came from and I'm leaning toward just the natural world and, and, and fate and whatever it is, then you might find yourself going out into the woods and, and having an experience, right? And, and worshiping that which we don't understand fully. There's something in us that desires that. But there's also something in us that, and I don't, I don't think this is just a, a purely American thing, there's something in all of mankind that believes that what we get should be earned, that if we're going to succeed in life, we need to work hard, we need to push, we need to be better than the person that's behind us, and that we create comparison games consistently of, well, I'm better than that person, I might not be quite as good at this person, so I'll chase them. But we're always kind of doing this comparison thing. And I think ultimately the end result or the desire of this comparison game is to help us feel better about who we are. And I think that's fair. And so when you dive into like philosophy and, and other kind of religious contexts, what you'll find is th these questions come up. Things like, what do I have to do to be considered good? Or what do I have to do to be righteous? Or what do I have to do to earn the favor of whatever it is that I'm choosing to worship? Or what is the standard, right? If, if there's this kind of two places, there's maybe heaven, there's hell, what is the standard that I have to meet in order to get to a place where whoever makes those decisions goes, yes, you deserve to be here. And that creates a whole lot of tension. It creates moments where we start asking questions like, okay, if, if there's a God and he's good, then why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? If there's a God and it's truly the Christian God, then why do Christians suffer continuously? If there's a God, then why does it why would he choose to have something, a person like Jesus come and suffer for 
individuals who rebel against him. If there's a God, what do I have to do to earn his favor, to help him to smile on me? To and these are the questions that Solomon's been pondering. He begins this passage by saying in verse 15, in my vain life I've seen everything. That's interesting. I, mean, I don't know how old he is when he wrote this, per se. We can take a guess. But So I, this month I turned 48. That's old for some and not old for others, right? And I would say I have come to a place in my life where nothing shocks me, right? I, I, I don't, you would have a hard time shocking me with maybe something that we've seen or a confession or, I mean, I feel like I've seen, I've seen some rough stuff. Um, I've heard things that I'm like, wow, that, they used to shock me, now they don't anymore, right? And so maybe you're at this point where you could say something like this, man, in my, in my life, I feel like I've seen everything. It's just, I've seen how people work. I understand the difficulties that exist. I, I, there's no scenarios that kind of throw me. And I think when Solomon's coming from this position of saying, I feel like I've experienced so many things and I've observed humanity across different places and different cultures, there's some things that are, seem to be consistent across the board. Regardless of where you come from or you know, what you believe, there's just these consistencies. And the first one he says is, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing." This is hard. Um, I've known some, I, I, I don't think I've ever actually shared this story. I was 13 years old and I was playing in a soccer match. Um, and I remember, so I was, I was kind of known as like an enforcer on the soccer pitch because I tackled very hard. And I remember, so there's this guy who I, didn't, I knew him. His name was Eric. Um, and he was playing striker, and I was playing in the back, and I, I tackled him so hard. I heard his leg snap. Like, I remember that. Like, I heard his leg just go snap, and I was like, ugh. Right, as, a, as an athlete, I mean, I felt bad because I knew Eric. Um, he, he was a good, he, I just remember him being a good friend. We didn't go to the same school, but our paths constantly crossed in, in clubs and in soccer and that kind of thing. And I knew that he was a Christ follower. I knew that he went to church. I knew that people were constantly talking about the good that he did. And then I remember breaking his leg and thinking, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I remember that moment. And then I remember a week later hearing about, even while his leg was broken, this deed that he did in the community, and it went like, national right you see this stuff in like from influencers like it's like oh this kid does a lemonade stand and raises like 15 billion dollars and then donates it right to to this charity and he was doing stuff like that and we didn't have cell phones back then so it was interesting how it all spreads it goes in the papers and that kind of thing that's that it kind of looks like this and it's paper and you turn it and it had news in it <laughs> right and then i remember a week later being told that he was killed It was the freakiest story I'd ever heard. I, I didn't get emotional thinking about it. He, his family, he's, he's still in a cast and he's out on a lake because in Bakersfield there's not much to do but water ski and we didn't even have wakeboarding back then. So 
we were out on the lake, and he was sitting in the boat watching somebody ski, and something had happened to the boat, so his dad threw the anchor down and forgot that it was there. They fixed it. He, he went off. There was so much tension that was built in the rope that it flung the anchor out of the water and came into the boat, hit Eric in the head, and killed him. The freakiest thing I've ever heard. And I remember hearing that and thinking, why? It was my, probably my first experience with death in a personal level. Um, he died with the cast on his leg that I put there. I, we had had conversations about it. I remember his mom coming to me at the funeral and saying, I, I, um, in, in somewhat just, Kevin, um, Eric loved you and he feared you and the next time he probably touched the ball he would have probably thought twice. And I remember thinking, wh- why? 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 How does, how does that happen? There was another guy I knew. His name was Dustin. He played on a soccer team with me and he was a horrible, horrible individual as far as most people would he, he was constantly coming in and out of juvenile hall for stealing things, for um, hurting people. Um, he was, we went to high school together. He was a fighter. You know, some of you maybe have experienced that, these individuals where they're just looking for the trouble, right? And he, he just seemed to, even though he had this like difficulty, everything just seemed to kind of go his way. He he gets elevated to certain things, and, and I mean, on the soccer team, he was a decent player, and he, he had great influence, and he ends up getting a scholarship, and I'm thinking, how is this even happening? This shouldn't be happening. You guys don't know who this guy is. You don't understand what he's been doing. And I remember as a young age wrestling with this comparison between somebody like a Dustin and an Eric and going, how is this justified? We have this 13-year-old kid that at, before I ever realized it was doing good in his community and loved Jesus and had a great family who dies in some kind of freaky accident and this other guy who, you know, back then I would look at and go, this is trouble. He needs to, he, he doesn't even seem to be suffering the consequences of his actions. What do we do with that? I grew up in in a church that would constantly tell me, if you just keep doing what the Lord asks you to do and being obedient, you will be blessed. And my experience is that that's not true. At least by my definition of blessing. So, as a young man, what I heard was, Kevin, if you just kind of keep your nose clean and do what you're supposed to do and obey Jesus and walk the way that he wants you to walk and seek out doing good for him, then things will, will be good. Like He'll bless you. He'll, he'll give you the desires of your heart. All of these scripture passages that would come out of context that were thrown that I just did. And then I realized, like, wait, well, but, but didn't Eric do that? This is what Solomon's talking about. And every one of us has these stories, right? We all, 
And here's the danger. The danger of what we're going to be going through today is this, that you're going to separate this from yourself. Because we're going to go over some things, and you're going to go, yeah, like, here I've been talking about Eric and this other guy and Dustin, and, and, and those weren't their real names, but here, this is what it looks like. Right? But the danger is that we don't see ourselves in both of those individuals. The, the purpose of what Solomon is going to go over for us is that we make this really personal. That even when we talk about what others may have done to us, because you've had some stuff done to you, that we're going to, as soon as we start thinking about certain sins, isn't it interesting that we start naming people in our heads? Right? So when you think, oh, the adulterer, you have somebody in your head. You think, oh, the, the liar, there's somebody that comes to mind. And instead, what Solomon's going to attempt to do is go, instead of you pushing that to another person, what I'm asking you to do is re realize that you're a liar. Right? Like, let's go here. And so in personalizing these stories and looking at what Solomon said here, okay, so he too has experienced that a righteous individual has died before their time and a evildoer has prolonged their life, there doesn't seem to be this fairness <laughs> that exists in that. There, how do you make that personal? Well, there are some things that you haven't done in your life that you've been accused of unfairly. You've been hurt, you've been attacked, you've been relentlessly gone after. And it's unjust. There are some things that you have done in your life that you weren't caught with. And that was unjust. You didn't experience justice on either one of those, meaning you get, sometimes you get punished for things that, I, once again, I remember being a kid, my, my sister, we were going to some party and my sister had a little sister. And if, you've ever had a, if, you, if you have a little sister, you know. Okay, so you know if you know. And um, this was the thing. She got, me and my cousin were playing in our backyard, and it was a hot summer day, and we were kind of playing with water, or I don't remember the hose or whatever it was. And my sister comes out in this really, like, fancy dress because she's going to get pictures or she's going to park. I don't even know what it was, but she was, like, 10. And my dad comes out. My dad, my dad, so you meet my dad, but he... He was this cop, right? And he would look at you and burn holes through your eyes and tell you to do something, right? And he would say, look, leave your sister alone. She's going to be out here for a little while. Like, she's, she's all dressed up. Like. And then I remember him specifically saying, don't spray her with water, Kevin. <laughs> right? And here's the thing. I didn't. Like, we were just, me and my cousin were just playing. Well, my sister walks over to the hose and picks it up, and she's looking at it and she pulls the trigger, and it just drenches her, right? And now she's upset and crying, so she runs into the house and says, Kevin has sprayed me with water. Like, like right? And my dad beat the crap out of me. I, like, I remember that. Like, I remember, like, this, this, this is one of those moments where I know I didn't do anything wrong, it was obvious, and yet I suffered the ramifications for somebody else's choice. Right? Um, it's fascinating how 
you know, even the stories that I'm telling, you probably have similar stories like that. But I also know that there's moments where I've done something that I feel really guilty about doing, even as a kid, right? Like, maybe I said something to someone, or I was never really all that horrible, but obviously dirty, rotten sinner did some things that I didn't get caught for, right? We get this. It's really important that we understand this. Um, And how Solomon justifies this or tries to reconcile this is he says this very strangely. This is how he, he phrases it. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, this sounds odd to me. Be not overly righteous. I mean, doesn't Scripture say that our our goal is to live a righteous life, to become more and more like Jesus? Yes. So what is he actually saying here? Well, we have to put it into the context of what we were talking about last week, because this is one long thought, and we're looking at the sovereignty of God. And what he's reminding us is this. If you are living a righteous life in an attempt to gain the favor of God, having expectations that he's going to show up in the way that you want him to, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And if you've walked with Jesus very long, you know this is true. Um, The best example I can give you is Jesus. (laughs) Jesus did nothing wrong in his entire life. And the world's response to his perfection was, you have to die. There's no justice in this. Jesus went to court and they said, we can't find anything that this man has done wrong, but he has to die. There, we have to, Solomon would say, we have to get to this place where we're not associating our righteousness with the type of blessing that humanistically we're desiring all the time. And for Americans, what does that mean? Prosperity, money, influence, and then the ability to do whatever we want when we want to do it. Typically revolving around travel, vacation, whatever that is. Right? We have to disassociate that. Because what Solomon is saying is you can attempt to live a life that is trying to get God in your corner and still end up like Eric ended up. So what is, your, what is your motivation, what is your motive for living the righteous life? And it's something that Solomon asks us to question. And then he's going to flip it to the other side, right? Not only be not overly righteous because it's not a good way to think. Verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? This one's kind of funny in a way. Um, we know that if we do dumb things that typically there's dumb results, right? I've shared this story before and for some of you a long time ago, but probably the closest thing I've got with this is 
me and a friend, we were at this, this river that was known for killing people if you fell in. And um, we were jumping rocks over this river. And we got to this one where I'm looking at this and I'm like, that's a little far. And he said the same thing. And we both looked at each other and went, eh, let's do it anyway. God's probably not going to kill both of us at the same time. That was our actual justification. Now, we both made it. Great. Right? Barely. But when I think and I process that, it's like, okay, um, if you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, your likelihood of surviving is very low. Right? So it, when we're constantly, if we're living a life that's constantly pushing the envelope of high, high possibility of death, right? Insurance companies make a living off of this. They ask you questions to calculate what a risk you are, right? So I tend to be high risk for insurance companies at times, and they would say, okay, so you're gonna pay more for insurance because your likelihood of dying a foolish death is much higher. And Solomon would say, we need to understand that. Yeah, you, you have the possibility of jumping out of a plane with a parachute and not dying. I believe it's actually happened, but the odds are not in your favor. So he kind of pushes us to these two extremes, right? Like, don't live a life that's so wrapped up in righteousness because you're looking for the favor of God and expecting him to move the way that you want him to move because you're going to be disappointed. Don't live a life that's so evil and so risky that you're going to die young and you're putting all of this risk out there because, and then ultimately he would say, but either way, regardless, you're either, you know, if you're living the righteous life, you're going to be disappointed. If you're living the evil life, you're going to die young and you're going to be foolish. So why do either one of those? And then he concludes this this thought with this. It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. Here we go. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. This is where it ties back into God's sovereignty. So as we're processing like who is this God and, and some of the questions that I went, the first thing that Solomon would say is this. You need to change your expectations of God when you're placing humanity onto a God and, and trying to create an understanding in a being that you can't possibly understand. What do we know about God to be true? Well, everything that's written in here. That's what we know. If it's not written in here, we can say, well, I experienced something, but it still has to tie back to what does God reveal to us about Himself? Not, do we, not what do we want God to be or how do we want God to act or these are my expectations of God based upon my own personal desires. It comes down to who is, who is God really? And this is the answer that Solomon would say the, the first thing we need to understand. God is going to do what God does for God's reasons and for His glory and we don't have to know what that is. I don't understand why Eric died a horrific death at a young age. I don't. I still don't. I can give theological answers to it, but this is, the, this is it. 
This is all I can give. Like, it really boils down to God chose that in that moment, it was time for Eric to go. And there's nothing more to it than that. I don't see that it had anything to do with him living a righteous life or a non-righteous life. when, When we look across humanity, we're all struggling with the same thing. God is sovereign. He decides. And it's really not in our control. That's where we begin this. And it's... We, I tried to explain this last week, whether I did it well or not. There's a lot of comfort in this. So you can, you can look at this perspective and go, wow, God's almost a tyrant. And I would say, well, maybe. He's sovereign. I can't question him. You can't question him. You're a created being. This is his created world. The creator gets to do what he wants with his creation. But what I can say is that Scripture tells us that God is good and that He loves us and that He knows what's best for us and that He loves us so much that even in the midst of our lack of understanding, He still sends Jesus. That His plan of salvation through the Gospel, through the work of Jesus, is part of His sovereign plan, and we even have a hard time grasping that, but it's good. The things that transpire in our life that we can't control, we have to find comfort in knowing that the good God is the one who's doing it all. That nothing transpires outside of His plan. I, it, it sounds crazy, but I'll often sit back and go, man, God's brilliant. Like, when's the last time you thought that? Like, oh, he's so brilliant. He's so beyond me. He's so much more than I can possibly comprehend. There's songs that we sing about this, right? Chris Tomlin made a living on it. it he, he's beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. He's so far outside of our scope. And He's good. And He's just. And that never changes. It's comforting to know for me that it's not on me. Thank God I'm not God. I'd screw it up. Thank God you're not God. We'd screw it up. Imagine the things. There's this old, old country song right, by a guy named Garth Brooks, and it's called Unanswered Prayer. Man, I'm dating myself huge. And the whole song is about experiences that he's had in his life that he prayed for God to give him, and God didn't, and then he looks back and goes, thank you for not answering that prayer. So the song is thank God for unanswered prayer. Now, we know theologically the prayer was answered. It was just no, right? But we process that. I look back at my life, and I'm like, Here's something that I really wanted to happen. 
I'm so glad that didn't happen because if that had happened, then this would have happened and this would have happened. I look back, like Christy and I in our marriage, we've been given opportunities to do certain things. When we were young, I remember we were actually given an opportunity to to, to move to Vail, right? Colorado, which is like, if you know anything about me, I am a mountain guy, okay? I'm not a city guy. I pretend to be. I'm a, I, I love the mountains, and I love to ski, and I'm decent at it. And we had opportunity to like move there as a young couple and, and, and set up life there. And, and I was going to do ski patrol at Vail, and Christy was going to coach volleyball, and it was like it all laid out. And I, I, can, I can tell you right now, the opportunity was phenomenal, and I look at it and go, what, Christy, why didn't we do that? And she's like, I don't know. And I go, I don't know either. We don't know why we didn't do that. All we know is that a sovereign God said, nope, that's not going to happen. I don't know why God said, Kevin, you're going to take you and your team and you're going to move to a city like Boston and plant the church because I would have said, can we go to Hawaii? There's lost people there, right? There's, There's lost people in warm places. Yesterday I was saying that a lot. Like burden me with ministry in the Caribbean right? I'm going to suffer just as much, but at least I'll be warm. Why does that happen? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. But what I do know is this. There's comfort in knowing that God is good and God has a plan and that if I am obedient to that plan, it's not that I'm going to get more favor. It's not that I'm I have these expectations. It's that the, I'm going to get to see the goodness of God in, in, in ways and areas that I wouldn't if I did something different. Do you, do you realize, like, I'm going to break this down as simply as I possibly can because I want you to grasp this. Do you realize that God cares less what you do? He, he, he could care less. He wants you to know Him. That's what's important. See, the Christian world goes, oh, you need to go out and make fruit, which we're commanded to do. But the reality is we realize, well, I can't really make fruit because it's Jesus who saves people. It's Jesus who changes lives. I just get to participate in what Jesus is doing. So I can put myself in a position to see more fruit in my life if I'm willing to be obedient to what Jesus asked me to do because I'm going to get to see him move. Right? It's, it's like I can walk out and work with Jesus or I can hide in a closet. Of course I'm going to see more fruit if I'm walking with Jesus because he's the one that's doing it all. But even that, it's like that's not the goal. The goal is to know him better. He cares more about your heart and your relationship with him than he does about anything that you do for him. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Scripture says that. Why? Because when we're obeying Jesus, we see how he moves. We understand him better. It it comes into direct conflict with our own human nature, and then we would desire to follow him more and become more like his son. Your heart is what matters most. Now, There have been people who have said, since my heart matters most, then I'm not going to go do any of the stuff that Jesus has commanded. And so you just get it backwards. And that's where Solomon's trying to, to, to reel us in here. Your desire to live a righteous life in Christ is so that you can know Christ. 
because that's where he lives. So we begin with that. The next, starting in verse 19, he says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does, not, who does good and never sins. Surely there is not a righteous man on this earth who does always good and never sins. So, I mean, this is all over Scripture. I said in order to understand that you need a Savior, first you need to understand that you're lost. This is, we can call this theologically depravity. We can call this coming in contact with that. We, basically, I say every week we're, we're, we're dirty, rotten sinners. That's who we are. We own that. Right? We own it. It's, it's part of understanding the gospel is to understand our own issues and our own depravity and our own failures and our continued failures even when we know Christ. And Solomon is saying, there isn't anybody righteous. That even though wisdom provides us the ability to be strong in how we live, even the wisest man, in this case Solomon, says, but I don't always choose wisdom. Because I have human desires. I, I don't always do what I'm supposed to do. There's things that I do that I'm not supposed to do. And then he gives this example so that he brings everybody into the same category as him. And the easiest example we can give of sin is the tongue. Right? It's so simple. It's so simple to, to understand. So this is his example he gives. He says, be not, oh, sorry, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does not, verse 21, do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. What is he attempting to do here? He's attempting to prove his point. He's saying, okay, I'm going to give you two scenarios here, and they're both involving the tongue. One, at some point in your life, yesterday, <laughs> somebody that you love and respect and know that you're close to has said something horrible about you. They've gossiped about you. They've said something hurtful about you. And they're saying, okay, don't take that to heart. Why? Because sometime yesterday, because it's every day probably, you did the exact same thing. Right? In fact, I, I've, this is just human experience. I have come to the conclusion that we hurt the people we love the most. Right? So if you truly love someone, I mean, love hurts, right? But those are the people that you're going to hurt the most in your life. And you're going to say something at some point. If you're married, if you're not married, get ready, okay? If you're married, you know this. Everyone does this. Everyone. You say something to your spouse that you wish you hadn't said. You're like, oh, dumb. Um, there are certain things in my vocabulary that I can say to Christy, even if I say it you know, in, the, in like a nice way, that I know that she hates for me to say. And the reality is, in moments of heat, I will still say them. I just do. And I'll sit back and go, ah, this would have been a lot easier if I hadn't said that. And she'll tell you the exact same thing. 
there are things that she'll say that I go, she knows, because she knows, she knows what to say, <laughs> right? What Solomon's attempting to do with his example is not go, oh, I want you to think about all the bad things you've said about the people that you love, and I want you to think about all the bad things they've said about you. What he's attempting to do is say this, nobody is excluded from sin. No one. In fact, he pushes it to the point that even the people that you love, you can't help but talk bad about them sometimes. Like of all of the things that you should be able to do, you, you should be able to control your tongue when it comes to the people that you love the most, and we can't even do that. It's, it's, it, like I said, it's the easiest analogy in wisdom because it's the one thing that we can all go, oh, I understand. I know I'm not supposed to say that. I said it anyway. Why? Because I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. And I want what I want when I want it. And when I want to be justified, I want to say it. Verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it is far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? He starts this passage with basically saying, look, when we're, when we're tying the sovereignty of God, we have to take our human expectations off of God. We need to understand that there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation there's nothing that we can do to to live a life where god just goes yes that's that's my boy that's my girl and because you've behaved this way here's all of this stuff nothing we do will ever thwart god's plans he has a plan he's sovereign he's in control and the plan is good <laughs> and then he reminds us the reason we think otherwise is because we're messed up in the head We can't even take care of those that we love. We're, we're beings that can't even control our tongue with those that we love, and then we expect God to perform. The, the, the lunacy of that is, is crazy. I mean, it's nuts when you think about it. God, I think I know how you should respond. Oh, yeah, but I can't control my tongue. And then he moves on. Solomon's going to make another observation. He goes, okay, so I've observed this. I've observed that there's sin in the world. Every, every person's a sinner. The world's messed up. It, it, it's a mess. You've heard me say every week, so sin-cursed world, sin-cursed beings. He's basically defended those two, but God's good. Sin-cursed beings, but we have a solution in that. Jesus, who says, I take you even while you're a sinner and I'll die for you. Meaning, you're not made righteous, but you are in Him. I, I always, the reason that we hold such a high Christology is because in my limited understanding and my, the way that I visualize things, I, I, I picture Jesus being my filter. Meaning, okay, he, he died for me. I accepted the gift of Jesus in my life. At that point, Scripture says that a bunch of things happens. So my sin is given to him, and his righteousness is given to me. But 
what doesn't actually occur, that's a legal transaction that occurs. So now I'm made righteous in the eyes of God. So when he views me, he doesn't look at me and go, dirty, rotten sinner any longer. He looks at me through this veil, this filter of Jesus. It's like, it's like you can almost picture, and this almost sounds gruesome, but it's very cool. You can almost picture, like, okay, you accepted Christ, and Jesus' blood is consistently flowing over you, and it's righteous, so that when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your mess. He doesn't see messed up in the head. He sees you through the filter of Jesus' blood, and he goes, righteous. Right? And this is where things get really cool, because it even as a Christ follower, we're going to continue to blow it, but nothing removes that filter. Right? So it's like, okay, I blew it again, I blew it again, I blew it again, and we think, oh, now, because of this first part, God goes, oh, favor's gone. No, you're still filtered. Right? He's, he always, if you know Jesus, God is always looking at you through the filter of Jesus' blood. Always. It never goes away. That's, Phenomenal to think about. Then Solomon turns and he's going to go deeper. He's going to say, not only are there sin-cursed beings in the world, in a sin-cursed world, but there's also people who are just downright foolish. I mean, we're not... Solomon, if, if this was being said today, he would say, there are dumb people. There are just people, and he would categorize this, there are just people who are evil. They have no desire for good in them. They just want to hurt you. They just want you to hurt. One of the jobs of a pastor, one of the jobs of the pastor is to filter out wolves from the flock. That is hard. Now, sometimes I'll see something and I'll be like, Matt, is this a wolf? Or is this just somebody lost right now? And sometimes, you know, you have to, you have to let them stay a little bit longer than you should because we're not 100% certain. But knowing what Solomon's about to describe here, you will literally, the enemy, the world, people, will literally insert themselves into your life just to cause you misery. Wolf. It was all over Scripture. I mean, Paul talked about this, right? That people will... A seminary professor told me, every time Jesus builds a church, the enemy builds a chapel right next door. And guerrilla warfare occurs. And the enemy's going to constantly be sending people into that camp as a wolf to distract people, to pull people out, to manipulate people, to hurt people, and the ultimate goal and the ultimate end is you can't trust God. That's what they're trying to get you to say. Cause division, whatever it is. Some, it exists. And this is how he, he says, I turned my heart, verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death the woman whose heart it snares and nests and those whose hands are fettered, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And we have to understand 
that we're, we're, we're going to keep all this in the context. And so when he's talking about her, what he's talking about is this, this image, this personification of foolishness and folly. Lady folly, lady foolishness. Okay? Um, if you're going, well, why does it have to be a woman? Well, wisdom is also personified as a woman. Okay? <laughs> Somebody said amen. So... This is not a gender issue here. Actually, we're going to get to one in a second. This one isn't. What Solomon is saying is this. There are people, and you have the potential outside of Jesus to give in to the schemes and the plans and the misgivings and the sinful nature of lady foolishness or lady folly. And when that happens, you become an instrument of destruction. Now, I know this to be true. And you know this to be true because even in Christ, sometimes we do this. Right? you can become an instrument of, of destruction. You, it, even if you're not destroying someone else, you are. Like, a lot of times I'll hear people say things like, well, it's my sin and it's not really hurting anybody else. And I'm like, then you don't understand the nature of sin. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna make this very clear. Okay? Every sin that you commit, every sin that I commit, also impacts other people. Every one of them. There isn't a sin in my life that I've ever committed that didn't impact someone else. There's also not a sin, and I know this to be true from arguing from a different point of view. I feel like I'm constantly being punished for somebody else's sin. Don't you? <laughs> like there's moments where it's like, it reminds you of, this, of the hose incident with my sister. Right? My dad has still never apologized for me for that. I'm not bitter. Uh, my sister came to conclude that story, and she told my dad after she looked at me pretty beaten up, Dad, actually, it wasn't Kevin. But the punishment had already been given. Right? That happens a lot. You know, we, we go, we go, we, we will often experience the consequences of someone else's sin even though we don't want to. And others will experience the consequences of our sin even though that's not our desire either. What we have to understand and what Solomon really wants to push us here to make this as personal as possible is that when we give in to folly and we give in to sin, it isn't just about us. The choices that we make impact others. The choices that we make have consequences. The choices that we make impact our relationship with the Father. Why? Because we're not walking in the way that we need to walk any longer. We already talked about this. There's moments in my life where I'm like, I feel like I'm praying. My prayers are just kind of hitting the ceiling. I'm like, God, are you really listening? And then the first thing that the Holy Spirit typically does for me is go, 
what is in your life that needs to be removed right now? Is there like some habitual sin that, I mean, sometimes I go, nope, there's not, well, often. Other times it's like, oh, I need to repent for this. And it's not that my prayers are hitting the ceiling, it's that it feels that way because like we see in Scripture, anytime somebody sins against the Lord, they, the first thing they want to do is turn their back. Whether it be in shame or just, I know that I'm not supposed to be doing this, so I just won't even get near you. Have you ever avoided people, right? Because you knew, like, <laughs> I know that I blew it with you and I don't even want to be around you right now, right? We've all experienced this. We have a great story of David doing this, right? In Scripture, for a long time. He alienated himself from the Lord. It says, and in, in when we read his Psalms, it says that when he was in this moment where he had just given in to Lady Folly, his kingdom was being impacted. His relationships were being impacted. And he described it as if he was chewing on gravel. Which sounds horrible. Your teeth are just breaking and shattering and you're trying to digest something that can't be digested. And he's saying, look, you have the ability in you. <laughs> Whether Christ follow or not, to give in to Lady Folly and become a wolf. Become a person of destruction. Be used for things that I mean, the, in the simplest terms that the enemy would desire you to be used for. But what Solomon also says here is that in Christ, we actually have the ability to choose otherwise. And I have processed through this. Sometimes the choices I make, like, I, I don't know, Maybe this is just me. But isn't it fascinating that oftentimes we'll make a choice, go against God, suffer ramifications, and then blame God for the ramifications? Does anybody else do that? Because I do. Like, how could you do this to me? And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, this was the choice you made. There was a moment, that's what you chose to do. There are ramifications for it. As a just God, you're going to experience those ramifications. You live in a sin-cursed world, you're probably going to experience them in a huge way. I remember with our kids, we used to pray, Chris and I used to pray, Lord, don't let them get away with anything. Right? And you're like, that sounds awful prayer. No, it was great. Because, and I'm sure they got away with stuff, but it's like, Lord, if they, f our prayer was if they start, if they start following Lady Folly, would you reveal it in some way? so that others can step in and help, right? And I believe he honored that prayer. There's, there's choices that we make, and they really don't come down to anybody but us. We go back to this tongue analogy. You make the choice to say something hurtful. You make that choice. It's the... The, the dumbest thing I think I've, I've, I've realized about humanity, and I'm just me as well, is I'll say things like, you made me so angry. Nobody can make me angry. 
Nobody holds a gun to my head and goes, get angry now. Right? Nobody can make me angry. I make myself angry. And sometimes what I get angry over isn't justifiable. You made me feel this. I mean, I'll even apologize. Have you done this one where you apologize to somebody and you're like, I'm so sorry that what I did made you feel that way. Right? For many of you, you're like, that's not an apology. You're just shifting blame. You're, you're saying that it's my feelings that are the problem, right? And they might be. Not all feelings are accurate. But we're constantly, like, attempting to shift this. Like, nobody can make you do anything. If you know Jesus, nobody can make you do anything. You have the ability in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak truth in love and to be loving to every single person. Why don't we ever say, you made me love you? Wouldn't that be an interesting response? Somebody comes at you and you're like, Spirit, you're making me love this person. Instead of, you made me angry. There's choices we make. We have to own those choices. And Solomon's saying, you're either going to follow lady wisdom or you're going to follow lady folly and there's going to be consequences to the result of that. So choose wisely. Watch your words. When you blow it, quit blaming other people for your blowing it. Own it. Accept it. Let's finish this up. Verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Okay. I do have to explain this. So I told you in the last passage, you know, it's like, is this a chauvinistic response? And I said, no. We, we're going to keep this in context. Now, there are, I have come up with four explanations to this passage. Now, I don't know which one is correct because I didn't, I'm not Solomon. Okay? So the first one would be, is Solomon a chauvinist? And the answer is yes. Well, how can you make a judgment like that? Well, the guy had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wives. So he clearly saw women as property. Okay? There, there's just no way to get around that. He did. So is, could this be a, a remark based upon that? Yes. It absolutely could be. We could be seeing one of Solomon's sins here just protruding out to us. Okay, that's possible. Another option is he could be going, I have 900-something wives, and I didn't choose wisely. <laughs> so the ones that I picked weren't so great, and so my experience is I can't find a good one among them, and he could be saying that. This could be a knock on them. The other one could be that he's, it's kind of a hybrid between the two. I don't want to get, I'm just going to tell you, I think that we always have to keep these things in context. I think that there's probably a little quip here. Um, however, when we get to the last verse that I didn't read in verse 29, this is what he says. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I think, it's, I think it's supposed to be read in the context of the same idea of this being allegorical and personification. 
and doing that, whichever one you pick doesn't really matter, the conclusion's still the same. He concludes, mankind was created upright and chose something different. And we go back to Genesis to see that to be true. I find this fascinating, right? So many of you know I have a biology degree. I've studied evolution to its extreme. Um, I've written paper after paper on this, and um, I find it fascinating because here's the thing. We know entropy exists. We know that things move from a state of good to a state of bad. We know this. We know that that's how things function. The older I get, the harder things become. <laughs> right? It's, p- things don't get better with time, they get worse. I, we, we, can, we can understand this. I, it's, it's this thing of where you know, God literally says, I gave you perfection, but because of who you are, you don't want it. You chose something different. And you're like, I would never choose that. The whole point of him ending with this phrase is to remind us that we do it on a daily basis. To say we would never do it is to deny what we do every single day. You in Christ have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to make wise decisions. You have the ability to never sin again, but it'll never happen. But the strength is there. But it fights against this human desire that we have to be our own God and to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, and how we want to do it. And that's why all of this stuff that he describes is such a mess. Every day, it comes back to this moment in the garden where we basically say, I choose sin over perfection. We do it every day. And if I don't act on it, I'm thinking it. He uses the example, the things that you say about people that you love, aren't you glad they can't see what you think? Because it's worse. And aren't you glad that people that you love can't see what they think about you? It's worse. We do this every day, and this is the crux of the whole thing. He built all of that up to make his argument to say, if you were in the garden, you would do the exact same thing because every day you're in the garden. Every day. You have the Holy Spirit living in you as a Christ follower, and you make the choice. Every day. This is why it makes so much sense. We can't even do the good that we want to do even when we know that it's good for us. That overall, I mean, that should take every human being to a place to go, wow, I am self-destructive. I have a self-destruct button. So do you. And we push it repeatedly. Oh, I just got fixed. Oh, let's push it again. We do it all the time. We'll even recognize it in some people, right? I knew I have a friend who every time something good happens in his life, he has to destroy it. And I'm like, what are you doing? She loved you. Ah. It's every time. If the Lord blesses him with something, he will make it a curse. 
But we're, we do that all the time. He is just, he does it more often, so it reminds me of when I do it. But that's who we are. The reason that this resonates so much is because everything that we read in Scripture when we look at the beginning and the fall, it's as if we were there. And here's the, here's the crazy thing about it. We make those decisions with the gift of the Holy Spirit living in us, and we're not typically facing Satan like one-on-one. I doubt that Satan has ever come to you and tempted you with something. I know he hasn't to me. I'm not that important. One being in all the world, there's no way that I'm good enough or a threat enough that Satan's putting his attention on me. He doesn't have to. I'm self-destructing. But then what would we say? Well, the enemy made me do it, or you made me do it. This changes everything. Because what this causes us to do is look around the room and look at the world and go, we all have the same disease. We all desire self-destruction. Given the choice of good and evil, eventually we will choose something that, self, that is self-destructive. Given the choice between love our neighbor and punch our neighbor, eventually we will punch our neighbor. Given the, the choice between speaking kindness or being angry, we will choose anger. How do you know? Because I've done it and you've done it and we continue to do it. And you're like, this is so uplifting. <laughs> What is the answer? Jesus. This is why Jesus is so important. I mean, I already described the filter. That's great. But how does it impact our lives on an individual basis? As a Christ follower, you have choice. You don't have to ever say again, that person made me angry. That person made me do that. You don't ever have to say the things that you don't want to say. You have the strength in you to do it. It's not yours, it's his. You have the ability to actually be the good that the Lord desires you to be. You have the ability to discern. You have the ability to apply wisdom. You have the ability to discern between this is lady folly and this is lady wisdom. You have the ability to, in the midst of living in a sin-cursed world and knowing that you're going to suffer, to handle your suffering in a way that brings glory to Jesus. Wow. Amen. Like you, we have that. There is, no, there is no excuse outside of just our sin-cursed nature and our constant dependency upon Jesus for a Christ follower to say, oh, you made me do it. We're free from that. When Jesus came, he said, I set you free of that. I cut the chains. If you don't know Jesus, Scripture says the exact opposite. You're a slave to sin. You're chained to sin. You have no ability but to sin. You might, my dad used to say, even a blind hog finds an acorn once in a while. Right? 
The answer is Jesus. We hold a high Christology. We praise Jesus. We, we worship Jesus. We, we live a life in gratitude to Jesus. We bank on His righteousness. We, we, we know that He is good. All of these things come out of a relationship with who He is and us understanding that relationship better. And then what happens as we mature as Christ followers is I don't look at a Christ follower and think, oh, you're mature because I see so little sin in your life. I don't know what's going on in your life. I, do, I have the ability to not act on sin but still be sinning. So I'm assuming you do too. I can still desire something that I'm pushing off. So yeah, Nope, I'm not going to do it, but in my head, it's there. We all have that. Jesus frees us. He says, even in the midst of a sin-cursed world, even in the midst of all of the difficulty that's going to happen to you, even in the midst of being Eric's parents and having to watch him get hit with the head in an anchor in a boat right in front of them. They have the ability through the strength of Jesus to bring him glory through their suffering. And what Solomon would tell us is this, because he didn't have Jesus. He'd say, you don't know how blessed you are in Christ. You don't have to, you're not having to go through all of this stuff with the hope of something to come. You get to go through all of this stuff with the hope that's already come. You get to filter all of this through the gospel. You get to filter all of this through security and hope and love and assurance. So do it. I know you're going to blow it. No others are going to blow it, but know that you're never not, until Jesus comes back, it's never not. Double negative. You're going to live in a sin-cursed world. Bad things are going to happen to you. Injustices are going to occur. So I don't say, oh, here's a mature believer because they're not sinning as much. You know what I say? Here's a mature believer who's willing to sin in a way that still brings glory to Jesus because they repent quicker. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, the same Scripture that provides you that hope also provides you the understanding that without Him, there is no hope. She said, well, what do I do? Well, you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Talk to somebody. Ask questions. For the church, just imagine what would happen if the church lived this out. What would happen if the excuses went away? What would it look like 
for an individual to go through suffering that we can't possibly imagine that's not justified, but them still glorify Jesus? What kind of impact would that make? What would it look like for the church itself to constantly be on guard and with everything in them, choosing lady wisdom over lady folly? What would it look like? What would it look like if the church actually tapped into what you've been given? It would change everything. And we go, we want to talk about all the benefits. Oh, it would change, you know, we'd impact all the world. Great. What would it do in your life with your relationship with Jesus? I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing in here. I know this is, this is hard stuff. Solomon flat out says it's hard. He says it's deep. Who can possibly grasp it all? So what's the goal? The goal is can we just take a small step? What's the next step? What's your next step? It can be small, but what is it? What is the Holy Spirit convicting you to do? What is the Holy Spirit encouraging you to do? What looks different? And I would challenge you to do it. I'm going to pray. That we're going to sing another song. And then we're going to give you some time to just process. Um, maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to pull somebody aside. Maybe you need to come up here and just hit your knees. Maybe you need to hit your knees where you're at. I don't know. But don't leave here the same. There's hope in Jesus. We need to live it. We live in a dirty, rotten, sin-cursed world and we're living in sin-cursed bodies but that does not define us. Jesus does. We gotta live that way. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for the hard. Lord, I am grateful that in the midst of all the struggle and all the pain that you don't just attempt to teach us with by tickling our ears with words that we want to hear. Lord, you love us enough to take us through the hard things. You love us enough to force us to search our own hearts in comparison to Christ. So Lord, I, I, I pray that, that we would take that seriously enough to truly contemplate what you're saying. And Lord, I beg you with everything in us that as we contemplate these things and we process them, that everyone else would be eliminated, that the excuses would be pushed aside, and that truly the work that you would do would be in our own individual hearts. So Lord, would you remove those things from our minds and our hearts and our desires even right now? And give us the ability to just look at ourselves in a mirror through your eyes. We love you and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.